Welcome to the Coming Clean Project, the All Things Environmental Toxins podcast, providing you solutions for cleaner living. We are joined by free thinkers, mavericks, trailblazers, and irreverent nonconformists that are unapologetically putting their finger in the air to the status quo, all in the spirit of changing the world for the cleaner. This is Jacqueline Bowen, Executive Director of the advocacy organization Clean Label Project, Food and Consumer Product Systems Engineer, and Professional Buzzkill at Dinner Parties. With me is my co-host Oliver Andrup Chambi, co-founder and CEO of the Danish nutrition company Puri, and a genuine health hipster. Hi there. As always, the contents contained within should not be considered legal or medical advice. Today's topic is how to detoxify your body, and our guest today is Dr. Joe Pisono. Dr. Pisono is one of the world's leading authorities on science-based natural and integrative medicine. He founded and served 22 years as president of Bastia University, U.S. first and largest fully accredited university of natural medicine. He's also a co-author of Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine with over 2 million copies sold. He is the founder and board member of the Institute of Functional Medicine, as well as founder and editor-in-chief of Integrative Medicine, a clinician's journal, the leading peer-reviewed journal in integrative medicine. He was appointed by Presidents Clinton and Bush to two prestigious government commissions to advise the President and Congress on how to integrate natural medicine into the healthcare system. He's now leading a multi-phase research study to assess the efficacy of detoxification for the reversal of the diabetes epidemic. If successful, it will change the standard of care, not just for diabetes, but for many other chronic diseases where toxins are a major contributor. Dr. Pisono, welcome to the program. Dr. Pizzorno, I, I believe that the first time we had an opportunity to connect was after Clean Label Project first published its study on heavy metals and baby food back in 2017. And fast forward to four years now, you know, obviously Congress is having all kinds of conversations about regulatory reform around what we need to protect long-term health and wellness of babies from heavy metal contamination. So start things off, what are your thoughts on these recent efforts around heavy metals and baby food? So first, let me start by saying thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's incredibly important because, you know, the children, they they have no choice. It's up to us to protect them. And we've done a very poor job of that. So when I start looking at things like this legislation in Congress, it's very exciting. And I think it has to be done in context. It has to be done in context of recognition that our environment is terribly polluted. And that pollution gets into our food supply. And the babies are the most vulnerable to this. So that anything we can do to help increase the safety of the children give them the optimal opportunity to, you know, to grow and be as healthy as they can be, we, we should do it. Yeah. And, and I hope that this is opens the door for, you know, this is starting with a baby food infant formula problem, but hopefully mm-hmm. spanning into all types of food. Yes, um, yes. But, you know, we'll see what happens, but. Yes. But let me go further. So yes, um, paying attention to baby food is really important. And so all the young mothers out there who are listening to us, I want to say, it's not only the food that you're feeding the child, but remember, it's the food that you're eating yourselves. And in particular, during gestation, uh, mothers need to be as healthy as possible because if they're consuming toxins, those toxins are going into the children. And when we think about toxins, we have to think about toxins in kind of two categories, uh, persistent toxins versus non-persistent toxins. So the non-persistent toxins are the toxins that are easy to detoxify. Okay, 
but the persistent toxins are the ones that are very, very hard for humans to get rid of. And so if the mother is full of persistent toxins, those toxins go into the baby and you can measure them in the baby until they're several years old because they're so hard to get rid of. So as mm. we talk about baby food, really important, but moms, you, you got to be really careful as well. Yeah, it, definitely. It's so interesting and, and a little bit scary at the same time. And I think that's also why it's important to have this conversation where we, we're going to talk more about later on, how can you detox your body? And, and now that we know that we, we are exposed to toxins pretty much 24-7, you know, but first, before we jump into that, we're, we're curious to know why toxicology? Uh, what sparked your interest to spend, you know, decades on how to get rid of environmental toxins uh, in our bodies? Well, of course, as a naturopathic doctor, I've always been aware of toxicity as being an issue. If you look at naturopathic medicine, uh, our, our basic concepts are get nutrients in, get toxins out. I mean, that's the whole foundation of this medicine, because we have a tremendous belief in the body's ability to heal. And our job as doctors is figure out what's blocking the body's ability to heal and then take care of it. So this is a great way of taking care of people. Now it's more long-term. You don't get like immediate symptom relief, but you get dramatically better health when you follow this model. So I was invited oh, about 15 years ago by one of the wealthiest men in Canada to develop a wellness program for his uh, 4,500 oil field workers. Okay. And, um, and I thought, well, that that's pretty interesting. I want to bring naturopathic medicine to corporate wellness. So his name is Alan Markin, by the way. It's okay to say that because he's been very public about what he's been doing. So he, he sent his personal Learjet down to Seattle to pick me up to fly me to Calgary, Alberta. And he said, okay, now what do you want to do? I said, well, um, I, I'm, while I'm a true believer in natural medicine, I'm also very objective. So I want to do lab tests on your employees to figure out what's their nutritional status, what's their toxic status, and you know how about how well is their metabolism working? I said and I said and asked him how much can I spend, and he said blank check. I said blank check. He said yes. Wow. He said and you're like you for you you're like this is a clinical study, <laughs> <Yeah>. fully <laughs> right. funded jackpot, oh, yes. right? All the bells are ringing. Okay, and I said, well, okay, here's why I want to do. I kind of laid it out. So I did $1,500 of lab tests on 4,500 oil field workers. Okay. Wow. So I got a lot of data. I was checking nutritional status. So I'll start right there. Of the 4,500 people where I checked, I forgot how many different, about 10 different nutritional status uh, measures. You're going to love this. Less than 1% was not deficient in one or more nutrients. Oh, okay. I believe it. Is, is, and so the people who, are, who work in like the oil fields, Skew male, skew certain age. Skew, what are skew, the uh, tend to skew male, tend to skew uh, younger male. Okay? okay, so we're mainly we're looking at people in the kind of mid twenties to mid forties, but there are older people there. There are some women as well. Okay. It's mainly supposedly okay. healthy young men. Okay, okay. supposedly young and middle aged men. Okay. So anyway, so out of 45 had adequate nutrition. Okay, so so I, I was not too surprised by that. But then I was looking at the nutritional, at their toxic status. And I was surprised by how much toxins I was seeing. So my initial thought was, well, of course, oil field workers. But when you look at the oil field workers, you have to realize these are not people working in refineries where you expect to be lots of exposure. These are typically, you know, men who get in their pickup trucks in the morning, they drive out to the prairies in uh, Alberta and they check on the pumps. So 
the pumps, they're, they're not getting any toxic exposure. I mean, occasionally they'll find a pump that's leaking, but most of them huh. just making sure they're working properly. Right. So I think, what's going on? Then I would, uh, one of the things we were doing was we would uh, fly around the all, all of kind of this area of, of Canada where we actually meet with people and do inter- one-on-one uh, inter- uh, interviews and interventions. <clears throat> so I started to realize that most of these guys were in doing the this work in the oil fields to subsidize their family farms. Hmm. What were they doing in their family farms? Well, they're growing the food that we eat. What were they doing with that? Putting all these chemicals on the foods. And I was seeing it showing up in their bodies. Now, while not a lot of them had overt disease, a number did, okay? Um, But I was finding all these signs of toxicity. I was thinking, I think, well, that's really interesting. So we've had a really strong environmental medicine movement here in, in the U.S., but they focus primarily on what I would call the yellow canaries. So these are people who are most easily damaged by environmental toxins. They have all these diseases and there's no good reason for the diseases. And you start looking at, well, they have trouble getting rid of toxins. So, and that's great work. But I was starting to realize it wasn't just the yellow canaries. It was, it looks like everybody's being affected. So I then started diving into the research. And there's some great research by a woman by the name of Ducky Lee uh, in South Korea. And she... Um, was I think the first person to start showing very strong correlations between body load of environmental chemicals and diabetes mm. about 20 years ago. So I saw her yeah. research. I thought, well, that's interesting. And I started looking at the research. I found study after study showing that people with high levels of a particular toxin have way more disease. And I started looking at cancer and diabetes and heart disease and Alzheimer's disease. I started realizing, wow, all these major diseases are dramatically increased by environmental toxins. Yeah. So there, there you go. And I started looking at the research and was just stunned by how much research is there, but even more stunned by how little doctors Anybody's know about Anybody's doing about it. Yeah, what, why is this happening? It makes me think, Dr. Pizzerno, almost of like, have you have you heard of like, I think it was called the Engine 5 diet? It's like the one where it followed, it was a population of just um, uh, people that worked at a, at just like a, a fire department. And then they all went on a plant-based diet and then mm-hmm. basically how it reduced blood pressure and obesity. And, you know, it's just one where you have like these big data sets that you can actually look and measure things. It just ends up being really, really interesting because that alone sounds like a fascinating book in itself on what happens of like, here's your baseline. What happens if you move just a few of these different you know, potential predictors of chronic disease, what actually happens in this population. That's fascinating. Very, very, very well said. And also we look at uh, firefighters and and police men and women. They have a huge challenge because now with buildings being so full of plastics, when those plastics are burning, they're getting a lot of chemical exposure. So there's been some interesting research on, you know, basically having to retire early because of all this neurological and brain dysfunction from all this chemical exposure, putting people on a detox program and they start functioning uh, properly again. So from, from your perspective, where does the madness start? So obviously in toxicology, the dose makes the poison, but when, when do you actually hit that tipping point on when something is, it's like, nope, now it's like, now that, that is too much. That's the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. Like, what does that look like? I'm guessing it's kind of unique to everybody, but how do you, when is too much? When is it too much? 
That is a very insightful question. And it turns out uh, how we've addressed that as a community has been seriously flawed. So in general, uh, many of the standards that are used to determine how much is too much toxicity is based on population averages. So if you're in the top 5% of body load of an environmental toxin, you're obviously toxic. Whereas you're in the bottom 95%, you're not toxic. Okay, so that standard was, is, was the first standard used for lead, for example. So you go back way back in the 60s, and the standard for lead was 60 nanograms per deciliter of blood. Okay, ignore the units, doesn't matter. But what it is, is 60 was considered safe because, you know, 95% of the population was below that. Right. Well, they started noticing, wait a minute, there's a lot of disease, particularly in children. You know, lower IQ in children and in adults, you get more heart, heart disease. So as the research uh, evolved, um, the number got lower. It went from 60 to 40 to 30 to 20, and now it's 10. And the CDC is thinking, well, it should only be five for children. Okay. So that's based on the actual physiological damage being done, not some arbitrary population standard. Right. So so many of the toxic standards are are based on that rather than on what actually is happening. Population so you dynamics what's as a po- population statistics, as opposed to this is what's actually happening in the body at different levels. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Then you have to now remember these are all statistical population averages. Then when you start looking at individuals, there's huge individual variation in our ability to get rid of toxins and and to protect ourselves from toxins. It's both both things. First, you have to get rid of them, but also you have to protect yourself from them. And it turns out there's huge genetic variations. And that's where we have what we call the yellow canaries. So, you know, for those who aren't aware of this analogy, it used to be when we had the coal miners, um, uh, one of the ways that, that they protected themselves when they're deep into the earth from the carbon monoxide that was being released from the coal and things like that, they bring with them you know, yellow canaries. And the yellow canaries were way more sensitive to carbon monoxide. So as soon as they saw the yellow canaries start to start to fall down, they knew, mm-hmm. get out of there because this poison is going to kill you. Okay. Got it. So we have people in our population who are like that, the yellow canaries. So for them, the threshold is way, way lower. Ah. But there's a threshold for everybody. And how would you know if you're in that threshold? Is there any way to, to figure out? Yes, that is not simple. So let me start by saying we suffer the highest burden of chronic disease in every age group ever in human history. Something is wrong. Okay. So and you start looking at what's wrong, it's very obvious. First off, it's not genetics, folks. Genetics accounts for less than 15% of disease. That 85% is diet uh, in terms of nutrition, toxins, and lifestyle. Okay, So a lot of this is, is, is controllable. But, but the reality is that um, I would assert virtually everybody is suffering some effect from environmental toxins. And for some people, it's just like, oh, I just don't have enough energy. For other people, they have overt serious disease. Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting and, and a little bit scary at the same time. Uh, so um, just just to go on a little bit different, go down a little bit different route, uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the biochemistry of the toxins and you know how and why they build up in the system? And, and you know, you're mentioning some build up and some is easier to get rid of. Mm-hmm. There are so many different ways in which toxins cause trouble. So I'm teaching this. I have people realize there's two important concepts. Number one is each individual toxin has its own way of causing damage in the body. Okay. 
But the second concept is almost all the toxins increase oxidative, oxidative stress in the body. So you have to look at not just the individual toxin, we have to look at the total toxic load because they're both very, very important. So you'll, you'll see an occasional situation where a person is, there's only one toxin causing trouble, fine, that's easy to get rid of. But for virtually everybody, the high level of toxins in our body, these are metals and chemicals, are causing oxidative stress, impairing metabolism of our bodies, and even more scary, in many ways, they're changing our genes. They're changing our DNA. So some of these toxins, arsenic being a great example, arsenic directly damages our DNA, so you get more cancer. So you might say, okay, well, arsenic's fine right now. I'm not showing you symptoms and such. But 20 years from now, guess what? You're going to have more cancer. And I was stunned by a, a study I found, um, I guess, about a year ago. They're looking at arsenic levels. Now, this was in a Native American population. So some possibility there's some genetics that are a little different there, but I, I couldn't find a good reason for it. Looking at a Native American population in the Southeast United States, and they found that arsenic accounted for one quarter to one third of the major cancers. Talk about prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, things of this nature. One quarter to one third due to arsenic. That's, that's crazy numbers, yeah. Those are crazy numbers. Yeah. What what is the role of the kidney and livers then in yeah. in all of this? So there's a, there's an age old naturopathic concept called the amunctories. Okay, so the amunctories are the body's organs of elimination. So we get rid of these toxins through multiple mechanisms. Some happens in the gut, but most happens in the liver and in the kidney kidneys. So the liver chemically breaks these things down to either uh, get rid of them directly through the, through the gut or to make them water-soluble to get, get rid of them through the kidneys. Then the kidneys play the role of either directly getting rid of toxins or getting rid of toxins that have been metabolized by, by the liver. So if the liver's not functioning properly or the kidneys aren't functioning properly, people would be more susceptible to environmental toxins. So in addition to epigenetics, what are your thoughts on microbiome health? The concept of the symbiotic relationship between a healthy gut fauna and overall health and wellness? I think that's a really important question. And I'll start with a, an old time naturopathic adage. Disease begins in the gut. Okay. <laughs> There's no question that having the right kind of bacteria in our gut is critically important for our health and having the wrong kind of bacteria in our gut causes a lot of, lot of problems. And what's particularly interesting is that we're finding more and more research that many of the chemicals used in our food supply are actually altering the bacteria in our gut. And one of the worst of them is glyphosate. And so when you have people have high levels of glyphosate, it's actually changing the bacterial balance in the, in the gut and to more toxic bacteria. But let me kind of step back a bit. One of the things I've been doing more and more of lately is I'm trying to grow my own food. And of course, I'm trying to do it organically. And I'm noticing that the same kind of principles that apply to growing foods healthfully, organically, are the same principles I use when taking care of patients. Get nutrients in, get toxins out. Now let's go back to glyphosate. I'll give you an example here, which is quite interesting. So when you pl spray plants with glyphosate, although glyphosate itself is not hugely toxic for humans, um, there are other problems with glyphosate because when it's commercially used, it actually... The commercial products are only 50% glyphosate and 50% other things that are way more toxic than glyphosate. But going back to the soil. So it turns out that when you put the glyphosate on the soil to kill the weeds, it's also seriously damaging the microbiota of the soil. 
And when you damage the microbiota of the soil, mm. the plants are not able to um, create as many nutrients. So many of the nutrients like carotenoids and flavonoids that are so important for health that we're learning, that, so independent from vitamins and minerals, just these carotenoids and flavonoids have huge impacts on health. And I'll, I'll give you the arsenic example in a second. So plants now have less of these other nutrients in them that are, that are important because the glyphosate has messed up the microbiome of the soil just as it messes up the microbiome of our guts. Now, why might that be important? So talk about arsenic again. We, we as a society did a great job uh, uh, almost 50 years ago now, realizing, well, lead's a problem, let's get lead out of the environment, and then DDT is a problem, let's get DDT out of the environment, and then PCBs are a problem, so that's great. So I was looking at that and saying, yeah, these, well, we, we made some progress there. But I was looking at arsenic, I said, wait a minute, arsenic, is actually causing as much or maybe even more trouble than lead, DDT, and PCBs. Why haven't we banned arsenic or tried to decrease its levels in the environment? So that's wondering, so could it be that our arsenic levels are higher? And unfortunately, arsenic levels have gone up, okay? And then I think, okay, so that's part of it. And could it be that we're less able to protect ourselves from arsenic? So one of the fun parts about having started Bastyr University is students come to me all the time and say, Dr. Pizzorno, I want to learn something from you. I want to learn environmental medicine. And I'll say to them, okay, well, I can't have you come over to see my practice because I do concierge medicine. I don't, I don't see that many patients anymore. I spend most of my time now just looking at the research and, of course, applying, applying it to the few patients that I see. Because my job is to teach doctors at this point. Anyway, so I said, yeah, I, I'm curious. Are there any constituents in foods that protect us from arsenic? In particular, are there any constituents that protect our DNA from arsenic? So she went diving into research and came back with a report for me a few weeks ago. And she gave me this list of these uh, flavonoids that are in foods that protect us the DNA from arsenic damage. I looked at that and I looked, I noticed one of those uh, flavonoids that's really important, it's left the food supply. And what I mean by that, as you've grown foods chemically and put glyphosate on them, plants aren't producing this bioflavonoid anymore that protects our DNA from arsenic. Hmm. So now in a situation where not only are we having higher levels of arsenic, but we're less able to protect ourselves. So going back to your original question about the microbiome, the microbiome is hugely influential. So the microbiome has an impact on our gut, but also has an impact on what the plants are producing in terms of molecules that are protective, that we're not getting anymore. It's really interesting, Dr. Prezorno, because going back to even your drawing those synergies between organic farming and how we treat our own microbiome and our own health, mm -hmm. similarly, plants have their own protective mechanisms. Yes. And so along these same lines is just as we can damage our own protective mechanisms, it sounds like as we have in the case of you know, mm -hmm. these bioflavonoids and arsenic protection, the same type of thing can happen in terms of pesticides and pests of like, yeah, you may have gotten rid of the pest, but you've also disabled this protective function within the plant. Exactly. One of the things that I always say, only because of, you know, kind of a little bit transitioning into kind of solutions mode, is one of the things that I always say when when I'm at the airport or people find out what I, you know, what I do that naturally always the conversation gravitates towards like, oh my God, what should I eat? What should I feed my kid? What should I feed my mm. pets? Those kinds of conversations. And I'm like, 
listen, I'm not a doctor, but what I can tell you is going back to that whole oxidative stress is that there are a lot of different types of fruits and vegetables rich in antioxidants, things like your strawberries, raspberries, blueberries. What are some of those other fruits and vegetables that have those bioprotective, those bioflavonoids, those protective um, properties that, you know, if everything's going to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, what can we do to kind of arm ourselves, so to speak, as our own kind of biological arsenal, if you will? Uh, great, great question. And it comes down to eating foods that are very colorful, organically grown. And I want to make a big point of that about this. Because when you start looking at then the uh, uh, constituents of chemically grown foods versus organically grown foods, notice I'm not saying conventionally grown versus organically grown, because I want conventional to be organic. Okay, so we'll say chemically grown foods versus organically grown foods. And it turns out that what has happened in our, might say, hybridization and chemicalization, et cetera, is we basically have a food supply where we've maintained the color of the food, but many other aspects of the food aren't, aren't being retained. So you look at, um, I, I have a brand new lecture called Unimportant Molecules, Unexpected Clinical Consequences. Okay, And the way I'm doing this lecture, I'm showing that when foods are grown chemically, they lose a lot of molecules. We've decided as a scientific community that less than 50 molecules and elements in food are important. We call them vitamins and minerals, uh, things of this nature, and some fatty acids and some amino acids, but it's 43. But you then ask yourself, well, how many different molecules are in foods in their natural environment? It turns out it's 50,000 foods, 50,000 molecules. So a thousand times the main molecules in organically grown foods. So then you look at many of these molecules and you ask, well, why are they there? Why are the plants producing them? Well, they're producing them to protect themselves from viruses and from bacteria and from ultraviolet from the sun and from becoming cancerous and all these roles they're playing. So that what we're realizing now is that while these 50, you know, 43, I should say, important nutrients are required for life, all these other ones are required for health. And so when the research was being done, they didn't pick up this aspect. They said, oh, if you don't have vitamin E, well, you get fetal reabsorption. You can't have pregnancies. Okay, well, that, obviously that's important. But they ignore the fact that at the higher levels of vitamin D over long periods of time play a huge role in protecting us from oxidative stress. So that shows up as more cancer 50 years later. So it, it's it, it short-term thinking. So when you're hearing the... Um... Uh, the different arguments around like uh, chemically grown or conventionally grown products, like they have the same amount of vitamins and, and nutrients. It is basically just vitamins, right? Like you can, you can kind of look at, it's not all the phytonutrients and uh, flavonoids that, that you're seeing. Those are very different. Is that what you're, yeah. you're saying? Yeah, exactly. For example, that flavonoid I mentioned that protects our uh, DNA from arsenic, it's 90% lower in the food supply and in chemical grown foods versus organically grown foods. 90% wow. of it's lost. Yeah. So I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's why we're seeing so much cancer. And I'm hoping it'll, it'll grab enough regulatory attention that we'll do something about it. Dr. Prisoner, and this gets a little bit technical and wonky. What are your feelings about the speciation of arsenic? I hear a fair amount of arsen you know, arguments of like, no, you've got to be concerned about the inorganic arsenic versus the organic arsenic. And to me, I look at it from my perspective and how I explain, I just say, listen, all arsenic is bad. 
Some is worse than others. Similarly, when you talk about cancers, all of them bad. If I had to select one for myself, I'd probably choose prostate cancer. Only because I don't have one, right? (laughs) And so what's your feeling on the whole thing of speciation of like, no, no, we're going to make sure we really regulate that inorganic arsenic because that's the bad stuff. What about regular Uh, organic arsenic? Very well said. I know that people speciate arsenic, speciate mercury, et cetera. Okay, fine. Um, Yes, um, that has some importance. But the bottom line is, stop the exposure. So look at arsenic. So you have arsenic, uh, uh, inorganic arsenic has certain level of toxicity. Then the body detoxifies arsenic through a two-step process. Uh, The first step is the methylation to something called MMA, uh, which is uh, monomethyl arsenic acid. We'll say MMA for short. Uh, which is actually eight times more toxic than elemental arsenic or inorganic arsenic. Then we do a second methylation to something called DMA, the dimethyl group, and that's 400 times less toxic than uh, uh, inorganic arsenic. So what happens is some people get stuck in the middle phase, so arsenic is more damaging to them. It just so happens. Now, say I do a low uh, concierge medicine. One of the things I do is check people's genetics. And I actually have... After we're done, I have a call with a woman who has that version of her genetics where arsenic is way more toxic because she can't get rid of it. It goes into the deep, into MMA uh, version and gets stuck there. So genetics has, has a significant role. The bottom line is it doesn't matter whether you're converting it or not. Um, yeah, you, you want to be converting it, but remember, it's, it's still toxic as it goes through this process and you're wasting all this metabolic energy to get rid of it. Just stop the exposure. Yeah. And where and how does this end up in, in our bodies? So we're talking uh, chemically grown food and organically grown food. Uh, where's, where's the link? So the, the arsenic is a little bit unusual in that it can affect both organically grown foods and chemically grown foods. So in general, with chemically grown foods, you have lots more heavy metals and, uh, and a lot more chemicals, things of this nature. The issue with arsenic is that um, it's available, both, it's present both naturally, so it's in the rock, and if water is being you might, uh, gathered from an area where there's a lot of arsenic in the rocks, it'll be arsenic in the water. Uh, a lot of the arsenic contamination, however, is industrial. And you have arsenic contamination, for example, if anybody has a, an old wooden climbing toy in their backyard for the children to play on, well, those old wooden things, the wood was preserved with arsenical compounds. So that's a significant source of contamination for, for, for children. So just because something's being grown organically does not necessarily mean it's low in arsenic. You've got to check because the water supply being used to grow it had arsenic in it. It's a problem, even though it wasn't being added uh, in, intentionally. You know, it can be contaminated. So switching gear a little bit and, and talking about the, one of your latest books, The, the Toxin Solution, which I've, I personally have had a hard time letting go of here the last, uh, the last weekend. Uh, but, you know, there's obviously you're, you're describing this, I would call it nine-week program with five different steps of, uh, of, of getting your body ready to remove toxins out of your body and making sure that your, your organs are actually functioning in the right way. So there's a little bit of a, a personal question added into it. And I think also a lot of the listeners can relate to it because some of the steps I felt like if you are already like taking care of your gut, you're, you're 
doing maybe regular fasting. You might actually also be doing the the, the saunas uh, on a regular basis. I, I try to do that. You're doing a lot of the things. Right. How important is it to just like follow the routine uh, strictly? Or if you say, you know, now I'm not personally suffering from any of the things, at least not that I know of. I don't have the, the symptoms that I'm feeling, but, uh, you know, how can I stay ahead of the curve, uh, so to speak, and, and using the program on a regular basis without following it strictly? Okay, um, lots of ter territory there to cover. Mm -hmm. So first off, let's talk about the um, concept of de detoxification. I find it quite interesting <clears throat> that the public seems to be more aware of this problem of toxicity than doctors are. I just I don't know, don't get it. So you have all these detox programs all, all over the place, detox products people can use, etc. So conceptually, that's great. But as I start with uh, my book, I'm, I say, wait a minute, before you go on a detox program, you better make sure your body's able to get rid of the toxins that you're releasing from your tissues. And unfortunately, people's livers and kidneys and gut are not functioning properly. So if you go on a program to start releasing the toxins before your body can get rid of it, all you're doing is redistributing the, the toxins often to more susceptible tissues like your brain. So I say, okay, let's just step back a second. Yeah, you wanna do detox, but let's do it right. And I start by saying, first off, there's no point in going on a detox program if you're continuing to put toxins into your body. So I said, now let's spend two weeks learning about where the toxins are coming from and how to avoid them. I find most people read my book report back to me that after just one week of extremely great care about avoiding toxins, people already start feeling better because they're now eliminating the non-persistent toxins. Because non-persistent toxins, if you're really good at it, within about a week, you'll get rid of most of them. Okay, we're good to get rid of them. The persistent toxins are the ones that take months to years to get rid of. So first two weeks, stop the toxic exposure. You already start feeling better. The next two weeks is we got to clean up the gut. Because if people have the wrong kind of bacteria in their gut, they're producing all these toxic chemicals that now are overloading the liver to have to detoxify them so the liver can't get rid of the other things that it needs to get rid of. So let's spend two weeks cleaning up the gut. Next, this work on the liver. So now we're stopping the load of toxins coming into the body. We're stopping the load of toxins coming from the gut into the liver. Now let's get the liver functioning uh, better to get rid of the uh, toxins. That means making sure that it has the nutrients it needs and using uh, herbal medicines that are what are called cologogs to help kind of clean out the liver. There are a number of effective strategies. And then the next one we got to deal with is the kidneys. So I didn't used to have to worry about people's kidneys, but now we're in a kidney failure epidemic because mm -hmm. again, the kidneys are being so overloaded with all these chemical toxins. And by the way, many prescription drugs, particularly non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and acetaminophen are very, very damaging to the kidneys. So now mm -hmm. we gotta go through now, start cleaning up the kidneys so they can function properly. And when these are all functioning well, now let's do a detox program. And the most effective ways to get toxins out of the body are in terms of diet, uh, fiber, and uh, cysteine-rich foods and supplements because they increase production of glutathione, and then saunas. Saunas are really important because the saunas will get rid of a lot of the toxins that the body can't get rid of through the normal mechanisms. Now, what do I mean by that? Many chemicals were, were designed to be difficult to break down by biological systems. So they're designed so we can't get rid of them. So they're hard to get rid of. I like to quote the work of a friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Genuis in Edmonton, Alberta. Great guy. He said, well, everybody knows that 
saunas are supposed to be good for you, it's supposed to be detoxifying. He said, well, let's measure. So he took a bunch of volunteers, put them in a sauna, scrape off their, scrape the sweat off their skin, and measure what was in it. And what was particularly surprising was there are a lot of toxins in the sweat that weren't in the blood or the urine. Huh. In the sweat, but not the blood or the urine. So the interesting thing about that is that so many of these toxins are so hard to get rid of, the body stuffs them into tissues as deeply as it can, into fat and things like this. So while they're less metabolically active, they're still causing trouble. So when they give the body a chance to get rid of them, the body says, great, let's get these things out because they're causing trouble. And it goes out through the, through the sweat. So you, now going back to the, the second part of your question, so how about people who live a relatively healthy lifestyle, like myself, for example? You know, I'm growing as much of my own food as I can. We only buy organically grown foods. When we're using healthy beauty aids, we're very, very careful to use low-toxin healthy beauty aids. You know, my wife has primary responsibility for cleaning our house, and she makes her own cleaning solution. You know, we use lavender oil and, uh, and vinegar, okay? So no toxic chemicals. Out in my yard, you know, you're not going to find any glyphosate or toxic chemicals. It's all healthy things. Nonetheless, I live in Seattle. I live in the city. We can't avoid all the toxins. So we have to help our body detoxify. So I do two things. One is at least once a week, a sauna. And for that mm -hmm. sauna, you want to make sure you're heavily sweating for at least 20 to 40 minutes. For, but the, the prime the kind of optimal range is 20 to 40 minutes. Drinking plenty of fluids, of course. And also I recommend those fluids be somewhat alkalinizing fluids because that helps the kidneys get rid of the toxins more effectively. Mm -hmm. So I do saunas uh, at least once a week. And also make sure that my fiber levels are high and that my glutathione levels are high. So, so along those lines, uh, uh, Dr. Bisono, um, what other behaviors would you kind of implement in order to avoid uh, toxins uh, in your environment? Not just from a, like, what can you do on the food side and, you know, what type of drugs and so on. Any other behaviors we should look at? Oh, there's so many things we can do to decrease our exposure. Let's um, say top three that you're saying seeing out there. So what are the high-level ones that we should really avoid? Okay. So let's kind of just kind of change that into principles. Principle one, only organically grown foods. Okay. Now I'll continue on that food principle side of it and never ever eat farmed fish. Mm. Farmed fish are high in PCBs, and the PCBs are hugely damaging to our bodies. If you look at PCB levels over time, uh, you, you get uh, things like increased breast cancer in women. Uh, you get uh, increased neurological damage. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, one of the strongest toxins associated with rheumatoid arthritis is our PCBs. Okay, so organically grown foods, no farm fish. That's, uh, and nearest I can tell, about 60% of our toxins come to our bodies from the foods that we're eating. So we can change what we're eating. The second area then is air. Um, if you're living in a city or within a hundred yards, hundred meters of a major highway, you must have filters, air filters in your house. Mm. My preference is whole house air filters. So if you have forced air heating, you put these filters into the into the into the air conditioning system or air heating system that are very effective at decreasing toxins. You run them twenty four seven, always run mm. run it, and then one then they're rated. And you want a MERV rating of at least eight. Now, in our own house, we have a MRF 16 filter. And I'll tell you, it's dramatic what's changed in our house. Mm. First off, almost no, no dust in the house anymore. And second, 
here in the Pacific Northwest, we have a problem with forest fires. And over the last few years, there have been a lot of forest fires in California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. So when you open the door, walk outside, you smell smoke. When you close the door and are inside, you can't smell the smoke. Okay. Mm. So it, it works. These things work very, very well. And the third area, if you can do it, is put a filter, carbon blocked filter on the water supply coming into your house. Now, yes, a lot of people will use these um, uh, kitchen sink filters, or they may have a little, um, uh, what do they say? Something called zero water, for example, where you put water into this container and it cleans it out. You drink the water. Okay. I, I mentioned zero water not because I have a commercial relationship, but because I looked at a study and it was very good at getting the toxins out. Okay. So, um, if you can, it's better to get the toxins out of the water coming into the house because when you're taking a shower, that hot water volatilizes many of these toxins, so you breathe them in, mm. and you can very effectively put toxins in your body by breathing them, breathing them in. So you want just to decrease toxic exposure as much as possible. You said th- only three, but I want to add two more. Okay, That's okay because this is really interesting. So yeah, <laughs> it is. Okay. okay, the next one is health and beauty aids. So healthy beauty aids are full of things like phthalates. <laughs> I mean, lipstick used to have lead in it, okay? So uh, healthy beauty aids have these phthalates. And what do the phthalates do? They bind to insulin receptor sites. Well, what, what, co- what would that cost? You ever heard of insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome? How about the diabetes epidemic we're experiencing? Mm-hmm. Diabetes is 10 times as common now as when I was in naturopathic medical school half a century ago, okay? Why is that? Because all these chemicals are coming to our bodies to block the insulin receptor sites so they don't respond to insulin. So our poor pancreas has to overproduce insulin to keep us alive. And eventually the pancreas burns out because you've overused it. And now you've got diabetes. Okay. So got to stop those phthalates. If you had to pick, like in your line of work, you have to have toxins that you love to hate. Which one would you say is your personal favorite one to hate? Arsenic. <laughs> very, very clear. Arsenic is causing a huge amount of disease right now. And the good news is that we can do something about it. Oh, for sure. Um, so when you, one of the things that I always talk about or I always kind of mentioned is that the food safety and regulatory policy, from my perspective, is fundamentally flawed because it's short-sighted. You know, what we see in terms of food safety recalls are things around E. coli, salmonella, listeria, your microbiological and your pathogen contaminants. What I never see are recalls related to, oh, elevated amounts of lead or mercury or BPA leaching from product packaging into finished products. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your theory on how we can kind of solve some of these more systemic issues as it relates to kind of the food industry? My own belief, uh, you need to realize my politics. So I'm, I'm very individualistic. I, I'm uh, absolutely independent. And I'm a very strong believer in the ability of the public to make change. Mm. So rather than going to Congress, which should be done, uh, but Congress is not going to make change unless there's demand. So we need to get the consumers to be aware that there's a lot of passive damage happening to their health. What I mean by that. So when we're looking at people's health, you can look at active determinants of health versus passive determinants of health. So active determinants of health are, are you just, are you choosing to exercise? Are you choosing to not smoke? You know, it's the kind of choices you're making. But the passive determinants of health are based, are having an impact, not based on choices people are making. 
Because if the air is full of toxins, if the water is full of toxins, if the food supply is full of toxins, if you're just going along well like everybody else and when thinking, well, the government's supposed to be making sure these things are safe, mm-hmm. but the reality is they're not safe. So I think as the public starts to demand that these passive determinants of health stop being so negative, I think we'll have a chance to make a difference. And, and it's happened. Look, we got rid of lead, we got rid of PCBs, we got rid of DDT. Okay. Well, let's apply that same kind of um, commitment to health that led to those those um, changes in what's being released into the environment. You know, that, that totally makes sense. One of the things I always mention is that consumer education can pull through industry and regulatory reform. You know, that it's a matter of, especially now with social media, instantaneously you can bring education and information to consumers and same day they can make choices, different choices for themselves and their families in the form of using their dollars as a vote for the food systems they believe in. So yeah, I'm totally right there with you. That's why um, I'm so happy with the work that you're doing and happy to support you because we must educate the consumer because ultimately that's where change is going to happen. Oh, you're you are too kind, Dr. Pizzorno. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I think you and I both kind of probably, I'm going to guess, because in my in our line of work, well, I'll just say first, in my line of work, it's like when, when you do things that disrupt the status quo, people get mad about that. Mm-hmm. So go figure. Um, a lot of people out there protecting, um, you know, the current, the current ways. And so then when you go out there and you say crazy things like lead is bad for all living things, but especially babies, sometimes people get angry for whatever reason. Mm. Um, how has, have you had any clean label projects? We get the occasional, you know, pushback from industry and things like that, but we've get so much love from consumers. Um, how about you in your line of work? What is the kind of feedback from kind of the traditional more Western medicine, um, you know, response to in, environmental medicine? Well, it turns out that's a fairly complex answer question to answer because, uh, as natural medicine has become more popular, uh, it's now being adopted by more and more medical doctors, mm-hmm. for example. And there is now a concerted effort to destroy the infrastructure of natural, integrative, and functional medicine. They're going after accreditation. They're going after labs to do the testing that we want. They're going after the supplement companies producing the products that we need. There's this huge uh, political and economic um, backlash from the invested industries to what we we're saying. So this is not not a small problem, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm at on the uh, kind of the front edge of of, of this battle. Yeah. So if you want to talk about my own in, individual experiences, mm-hmm. what's been quite fascinating is that I've actually uh, debated on radio, television, both local and, nat- and national, with these various uh, medical apologists, uh, you know, medical doctors who totally buy into the drug model, and and are totally antagonistic. And, and I'll tell you, um, when you actually can get to the argument being based on research rather than emotion, uh, they don't come across very well mm-hmm. because their basic positions are untenable. You, you can't ignore how much damage is being done. So when I start qu- quoting research, um, they they start backing off. Mm-hmm. But I've been doing this for a long time now. You know, my textbook of natural medicine has now sold 100,000 copies in four languages. Hmm. So we're out there educating people. And there was an interesting uh, occurrence about 10 years ago where the American Medical Association actually passed a resolution condemning me personally as um, a bad guy. Okay. Now, now they end up (laughs) 
No, actually, I, I, I find this kind of a badge of honor. Anyway, so you actually, need to make t-shirts and pins. Yeah, you so put anyway, them on your after website. Legal, yeah, after legal review, they removed my name from, the, from their motion, okay? Because they, they obviously couldn't do something like that. But you know what we're doing is very threatening to the medical industrial co- uh, complex. There's no question about it. Now, I'm, I want to be real clear. I'm not anti-conventional medicine. No. Conventional medicine does a lot of great things in the world, okay? But I'm anti-healthcare system, which is only conventional medicine, because mm-hmm. conventional medicine is mainly only good for advanced disease. It's not very good for everyday health. And that's what we're talking about here. Everyday health. How do you avoid getting sick? Yeah. Well, you avoid getting sick by getting nutrients into your body and keeping the toxins out. I think that's it's, some really interesting uh, thoughts. And 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 on that note, I'm actually super curious uh, to get a little personal on you, uh, uh, Doctor Persona. So, what would you what would you have for dinner tonight? Or or if 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 we were to be a little more serious, what are the key things you do day to day to to protect your own health? Oh, for dinner tonight. Um, so uh, we're a little bit of a traditional uh, household in that my wife is one who does most of the cooking and my wife is an incredible whole foods cook. So um, right now, however, she's enrolled in a master's of nutrition program. So she wants to get her, get her MS uh, so that people will take what she writes more seriously because uh, she's such an expert in bone health. Uh, just incredible. We have letters from hundreds of women that fall in her guidance got their bones back, went from osteoporosis back into normal bones. Anyway, pretty exciting stuff. Exciting. But having said that, uh, what we'll probably have tonight uh, will be uh, beans with, uh, we're primarily vegetarian. So there'll be black beans, organic black beans uh, that are uh, rich in in nutrients and there'll be a lot of vegetables uh, put into that. Okay. So, and then we'll do a, a green drink smoothie. So what we're doing there is we'll, Go to our garden. I'll take some kale out of our garden and luxury uh, strawberries. And uh, what we put in, you know, we put, put in a bunch of vegetables, put into Vitamix. Again, no commercial relationship. I like those kinds of things because they kind of mix everything together. So you have all the fiber rather than a juicer, which takes out the fiber. So you want to mix it all together. So grind it all up and we'll get this very, very uh, green rich drink. And that, that's a fairly typical dinner for us. Nice. That's, that sounds delicious. So uh, we know you're you're obviously a best-selling author, and then personally, as I said earlier, I would recommend the Toxin Solution as uh, as something for anybody who you know maybe have a chronic disease or illnesses around them, and you know want to look into it. It's I think it's it's a really interesting. But if um, but if our listeners want to learn more in general, which one of your books would you recommend? So if it's a healthcare professional, I recommend my my textbook, Clinical Environmental Medicine, because for that textbook, we went through and showed all the diseases being caused by these toxins, how you diagnose them, how you get out of people's bodies. So it's very, very scientific, very rigorous. For the consumer, if they want to detoxify, the toxin solution is the best thing that I know for detoxification. And I also recommend the book by my friend, uh, Dana Minich. She wrote a nice book on detoxification from the food side, which I think is a good companion. Now, if a person has a health problem, and they want to learn a more natural medicine approach, I co-authored with my friend, Dr. Michael Murray, the Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine. So Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine has sold uh, over 2 million copies in six languages. And it goes through and talks to people about the first part is how do you live healthfully? And then after that, if you do have a disease, here's how to take a natural medicine approach to reverse your disease. I love it. And, and it's also refreshing to hear about how well received these books have been. And so that helps restore my faith and <laughs> restores my faith in humanity. So that's great. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I, the one I'm most encouraged about is 100,000 doctors, half of them MDs, have yeah. bought my textbook of natural medicine. Yeah, okay? right? That is so, great. Yeah. So more and more doctors are realizing that the medical model has limitations. And since there are, you know, almost, you know, virtually all the doctors are really concerned about their patient's health. Once they start realizing that the model they're using has limitations, uh, many of them start looking um, for other ways to help their patients. And that's where you get the fields of integrated medicine and functional medicine. You know, it, it's it's interesting. And we probably could have a conversation itself about it, but even how you said it um, when we were talking about basically the healthcare system, that in itself kind of seems like it's fundamentally flawed in that you go to the doctor when you're sick, you don't go to the doctor when you feel well, but it's one where it's like, who's, who's out there? What industrial or medical complex is out there? Like, no, let's focus on how to just keep you healthy. So you don't actually have to go to the doctor when you get sick, you know? So it's almost like this whole facet of healthcare is just being completely ignored. Almost like a little bit like like mechanics. It's like, oh, you go to the mechanic. I guess you get oil changes occasionally, but Mm -hmm. I mean, you go to the mechanic when your car is broken, not when your car works great. Well, good analogy. So let me give you another uh, story. Do we have time for me to give you another story? Let's let's do it. Let's do it. So this this is is a a good one or a bad one, (laughs) depending on your perspective. So about 10 years ago, a very wealthy friend of mine was approached by uh, uh, a local medical school to fund a research uh, uh, arm in cardiovascular health. And uh, they'd saved his life. So very reasonable request. But he said, but you know, well, I'm I'm delighted to fund uh, medical research in cardiovascular health. I want to fund it more along the signs of integrative medicine. And they said, okay, of course, we're happy to do that. So we got together in their very exclusive dinner and uh, met with their their uh, lead people because he wanted to make sure they're going to do integrative medicine. So we had this dinner and it was a lot of fun. They're talking about all people's lives they'd save with you know cardiac surgery and bypass operations, things like this. And and the, and that time they're fairly the, the stents were early in their in their in their uh, use, and so talk about how, the, how people's lives they save from the stents. So after the conversation was done, I then said, "So that's great. So now tell me, what's integrated medicine mean to you?" They said, "Well, in addition to our surgery and drugs, we'll do some meditation therapy and some dance therapy." And I said, "Well, that's fine, but you know, there's more you can do." I said, "Do you prescribe statin drugs?" They said, oh, yes, they're Merkel drugs. I said, well, do you also give them coenzyme Q10? Because statin drugs decrease the production of CoQ10. They said, oh, no, there's no validity to that. I said, no, they didn't know me. And I, I, I had to say this, but I kind of uh, blindsided them. I literally took out of my pocket uh, printed abstracts from 12 studies showing that, indeed, statin drugs decrease coenzyme Q10 levels. And when coenzyme Q10 levels go up, you get more heart disease. And we mm-hmm. give them statin drug, uh, give them coenzyme Q10, you reverse the damage from statin drugs. And they mm-hmm. said, oh, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I said, well, you know, I've got another 20 studies at home. How about you eat more than here? And the response was, no, um, don't bother. I don't really have time to look at that. Well, that's interesting. Let me start talking some more and said, now, you know, when you do the stents that save people's lives, which is wonderful, you know that about 75% of them reach the nose within five years. And he got really mad. He said, they reached to know somewhere different from where I, where I put it in my stent. And I looked at him and said, don't you get it? Yeah, the stent was great, but you got to stop them from needing the stents. Mm-hmm. And, but let's go further. 
So here I have this cardiac surgeon, same people's lives. And at that point, I don't know what the numbers are now, that cardiac surgeon was making $550,000 a year doing cardiac surgery. Now, how about a integrative or functional medicine MD? How much do they make? Well, it was about $125,000 a year was the average. So to go from interventionist cardiology to preventive cardiology, mm -hmm. they would have to take a 75% drop in income. Yeah. Lots of inducements there to keep up the high-tech model exactly. and not deal with the reasons why people are sick. Yep. That is interesting. Completely agree. There you go. Follow, yeah, follow the green and it'll tell you some of the mm -hmm. answers for sure. So what's next for you? Next for me, um, I there's many aspects of my life I'm really enjoying right now. And one of them is I've been doing medicine now for literally over half a century. You know, started as, as a researcher, then a student and a practitioner. And so with all this work, with all the research I've read, all the people I've seen both directly and indirectly, I've come to have more and more understanding of why people are sick and how, and how healthy people become healthy. So that's what I'm doing right now is continuing to work on helping people understand what causes health and what causes disease and then um, doing something about it. And I realized that the place for me to do this the most is with doctors. So I literally lecture all over the world on environmental medicine. And there's huge interest amongst doctors all over the world in this area. That's at least a positive news and, and sounds like very important. So for our listeners, where can they go find out more about you and, and in your organizations? So the, well, obviously you always look me up on the internet. There's lots of, there are a lot of hits there and you'll see that the people don't like me. They, they have their articles as well. Um, so I, I support organizations like the Institute for Functional Medicine. I'm currently chair of the board there. And we work really hard to educate healthcare professionals on how to think about medicine in this way. Um, I'm also, uh, I create a, help create an organization called the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. And so they maintain a registry of the uh, properly licensed and educated naturopathic doctors. So those are the two organizations that I support the most at this time. Now for students wanting to learn this medicine, of course, I founded Bastyr University and believe there's a lot of good opportunity for people to learn how to practice true curative medicine. Very exciting. Any Anything we're missing or anything you'd like to add? I guess I'll just say the same thing I said before. Our bodies have tremendous ability to heal and be healthy. And our job is to provide the body what it needs and to be careful to avoid the things that damage our bodies. So it's very simple. Eat nutritious foods, avoid toxins. Thank, Thank you, you so Dr. much. This was great. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the Coming Clean Project, the All Things Environmental Toxins podcast, providing you solutions for cleaner living. For more information on the Coming Clean Project, please visit us at comingcleanproject.org.